Good day, fellas. Welcome to Uncensored Advice for Men. We're back in the saddle here, uh, building out these episodes. Thank you guys for being patient um, with me as I had some life changes in my world. If you want to know more, connect with me or something, we could always have a conversation offline, uncensoredadviceformen at gmail.com. That's my email address. Uh, my phone number is also 352-274-4500. I have a lot of you guys reach out to me and talk to me about some of the tough things that you're going through in life. I just want you to know that I'm here for you to talk to, to pray with you, and maybe to introduce you to some of my friends who can help you walk through whatever journey you are going through. That's the mission of this show, okay? So let's dive into today's interview. It's with a great uncle of mine. I think it's a great uncle. Is that great uncle, Uncle John? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. So you're my wife's grandfather's brother. Is that right? Right. That's correct. <laughs> awesome. So for, for the purpose of not having to say great uncle, step uncle, we're going to call you Uncle John. Does that sound good? That's, that's all. Okay. I like it. <laughs> all right. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Okay. I'm a pediatrician. I've practiced for 50 years. I'm going on 51 years now. And um, in a small town, Hot Springs, Arkansas. And um, I um, learned through practice in medicine that you never can really do enough good. And um, so I began serving on some medical mission teams in 2091, uh, or, or 1991, rather. And then from 2006 to the present, I've worked exclusively with an organization called KenyaRelief.org that is located in southwest Kenya, Magori, Kenya. Uh, my good friend Steve James. CRNA is the head of this NGO, and the last time I was in uh, Kenya was in August and September of 2022. Wow, so you were just there. At the time of recording, March 2023, that was just a few months ago, you went overseas to do a medical mission. What does that look like for you? Okay, uh, I've been there. This was my 17th time to Kenya and my 25th time overseas. and. Um, the story, the story really, I, I had to tell you my story because the story started in 1991. And I really had been practicing for 19 years in, in this small town and felt like that was my mission. But a friend of mine, a dentist, asked me to go with him to Gualsensi, Honduras. And um, I really didn't feel a direct calling to go to this place. I didn't know where it was. and um, But I found a verse in the Bible and it said, um, therefore to him who knows who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. So based on that verse, I went to Balsensi, Kenya, and it changed my life. It, uh, it revolutionized the way I looked at the world and myself. Um, I had culture shock both ways. Um, I saw extreme poverty, um, medical conditions that should have been treated years ago and had progressed. Um, I witnessed the death of a newborn that I was working on the delivery with. Um, our team was exposed to this trauma. <clears throat> and yet I saw the people were very joyful in, the, in these environments. I came back home, the culture shock coming home was, uh, Americans were depressed, sad, disillusioned, and angry. Uh, in, in the midst of uh, material wealth, 
and and access to medical care almost instantaneously. And so at first I became kind of angry at Americans. And then I I felt sorry for them because I realized that in the developing world, people had something internally that we needed, even though we had some things materially that they needed the spiritual dimensions of their lives based upon what they had experienced. It changed them in a way that I really wanted to understand. And so over the next few years, I went on several mission trips um, to Honduras and Peru. And uh, I was still processing this when, uh, when the first time I went to Kenya. So same thing there in Kenya, only multiplied times 10. Uh, I've got an eye doctor who goes with me. And uh, we saw a young man with an ophthalmic tumor. He had sunglasses on. We didn't even know it was there. He took his sunglasses off. There's this huge tumor the size of a golf ball that he'd had for about five years. And my friend said, the ophthalmologist said, optometrist said, you know, before I saw this man, I had seen the nine out of the worst 10 eye cases that I've ever seen in the world in Kenya. And he said, and when he took his glasses off, all 10 of them were in Kenya. So, so terrible, terrible conditions there. Um, uh, Prolonged delays between needed surgery, tumors the size of footballs. Um, you know, children with tumors, uh, all kinds of diseases that, you know, since I was in tropical medicine in Louisiana, I hadn't seen before, just read about them in books. And so, yeah, that, that's what the mission field is like. The mission field is, is it's overwhelming. Many people will come back with PTSD. My, my uh, wife is, wife's niece is a burn unit nurse in Houston. And she went on this trip with me one time. She didn't talk to me for three months, and I finally just checked on her to see what was happening. And she says, I'll never go back again. It's the worst experience I've ever had with illness. I mean, realize this lady works in a burn unit, which I would say would probably be all, almost the worst experience that anyone can have here as a nurse. But, but it really is devastating. Wow. I was a firefighter medic for for a while in my life and i've I've seen super traumatic stuff right and um i could i could envision that you know i could i could um i could sympathize with what she said because in a trauma situation you know you in the in the u.s something bad happens you know call 911 here comes josh scoop you up take you to the hospital get fixed maybe not but you know, it's a machine over here. Over there, they might be living with these conditions their whole life and have no hope to get any type of support. To me, that would be terrifying to see because how much have I taken this for granted? How much have I not been grateful for being here in the US? And here, these people are living with it day by day. Yeah. What's even worse, I, I got to add this, if my kid was sick and I didn't have access to take good care of my kid and I saw my kids suffer on a day-to-day basis, that would wreck me as a dude. So you go over there in 1991 and you said it changed your world, right? You read the verse. If you, if you know to do good and you don't do good, it's a sin, right? So you go over there kind of maybe reluctantly, but something in you changed. You said the way I looked at the world changed. And the way I looked at myself changed. What do you mean by the way I looked at myself changed? Um, I really probably felt I was pretty adequate at this point. I've been practicing for about 19 years. I've worked in a, in a metropolitan 
hospital, probably one of the largest in the United States at the time, 3,000-bed hospital. I'd seen pretty much everything. Uh, I trained during a time where we did everything. The physician did everything. We did our own lab. We drew our own blood. We ran our own cultures and lab tests and everything. It was a, it was kind of a weird time in life to do that and totally overwhelmed with it. And I'd overcome that and stepped out into the world and practiced and, you know, being on call by yourself in a, in a town that serves a probably, probably a catchment area about 600 miles, something like that at the time in 1977. I felt pretty secure that I, that I could handle things. And I, I kind of understood the world. Um, but I had no idea what happens beyond the borders. My only trip out of the United States was as a teenager to Juarez, Mexico, bought a pair of cowboy boots, came back across the border. That was it, you know, so, and I've been on, I've been on vacations, but I've been being served. I was insulated from cultures. Uh, you know, I was the pampered tourist and and not, you know, a servant. And and then I just realized that this is a day-to-day situation that these people endure. And uh, it, it really, it really changed me. And also the inadequacy of resources, um, you know, just, just medical supplies and things that they needed weren't there. And, and uh, intermittent care, you know, in Peru, I went there and, doc- and patients said, you're the only doctor I've ever seen in my whole life. And they're 90 years old. And you know, it was amazing too. Again, that, that, that same sort of thing, recurring theme kept happening. This particular patient, her she was so sick she was carried in by her four sons and made kind of arm letter for her and brought her in and carried and set her down at the desk. And the first thing she did to her translator, she spoke and she said, I've been waiting for you to come because I knew that God was going to send somebody here to help me. Hmm. <laughs> I thought, what faith? I mean, these are the kinds of things that you can't you can't ever get out of your head. And they just keep swirling around there almost like a wearing blender in your brain. And, you know, it's like, what's going to come out of this? And uh, so, so this is, this is my journey. This is what I'm, I'm still, I'm still going through that same thing. And yeah. I'm still learning. A guy asked me the other day, say, are you a lifelong learner? I said, yeah, I'm a lifelong learner. <laughs> I better be. You know, we're always learning. And uh, I hope it's changing me to the point where one thing I noticed the first time I came back from Kenya, I had looked at my patients before, but I don't think they realized who was looking at them. You know, that was a professional. There was a distance between me and them. But but I actually looked at little babies. I mean, these are these are infants that are six months old, nine months old, something in that range, probably under nine months because they're they're younger than that. They're just, they're just starting to sit up and they looked in my eyes and they stared at me like I was an alien. I mean, it was, the, you know, kids are trying to figure things out. And normally they just kind of scan across and look at you. But they literally connected with my eyes and looked at me. And I started to feel a connection with people based on some compassion that it, God had developed in my heart that, that I thought was there before. But the depth of it, it increased that even the six-month-old baby could look at me and they were not at me amazed I won't give that impression at all. They weren't amazed at me, but they were they were puzzled and amazed at what they were seeing. Yeah. So, so it's a transition of the heart that had taken place in me. And I found people opening up to me with problems that weren't related to their visit over and over and over and over again. You know, and, and I realized how much I needed prayer each day to even approach the day. Because of the things that were coming to me, and and 
in America now, it's reached a point, let's go back to America again, it's reached a point now there, um, you know, I, I treated coals and air aches and sore throats and all that thing for 20 years. That was a that was a major reason for an office visit. Maybe a few injuries in, mixed in there too. Some deliveries, they were normal, they were okay. But, the, but then this psycho, psychological wave started coming across America where pediatricians started seeing more depression, anxiety, suicide, you know, self-hatred, anorexia, all these, all these diseases related mental illness, to the point when I, when I practiced in 2021, it was 60% of my practice, maybe even 65% of my practice. And, and so it wasn't those simple, I can fix it things. It was these things that, that, that took, took deep thought, deep connection with the patient, um, a therapeutic bonding between you and the patient that was necessary that had developed in me because of the experiences that I had on the mission field. And so I found that I was more effective in doing that. My nurse told me one day, she said, she said, she said you always seem to fix it. She said, how do you do that? Because she had known what the complaint was and what was going on. And you'd come out of the room and the patient would be smiling. And, you know, it looked like things were better. And, and I'd say, well, on the way to work today, every day, I pray for that patient that will come to me that will have something that is way beyond my skills and capacity as a physician to do and, and I want you to take over when that happens. I want you to deal with that. And, and it was always provided me. You know? And so, so the missions helped me to develop compassion to a degree that I had never, ever experienced before. And, and, I, and I'm still growing in that dimension. Uh, that's, that's important. You said take over from here. Were you, what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean the nurse take over? Do you mean God no, no, take no. over? What does that look like? Yeah, God, God take over. Yeah, I, I feel like I think that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do things. He, we, the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers, but we have to yield to that. It's a constant yielding to the Holy Spirit. And if we, if we walk into situations thinking, I've got this, you know, well, you do. But who are you anyway? You know, and what are, you, what is your, what are your capabilities? You, you, you think you're really sharp. You know, you've had a lot of experience. You had good training. You get into the situation and you go into that with, with that attitude. That's all you bring to the table. That's all you bring there. But if you acknowledge that there, there are depths of things that we have to deal with in the human spirit, the human soul, even the human body, that we don't have understanding for, and we have we need some help. We really need some help. What we do is we say, I know that's going to happen, and I'm not going to be amazed at this happening or afraid of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into that experience with your guidance and with your help. We have I have a surgeon who's a uh, he, he does uh, AV fistulas, AV connections for dialysis, and he does about five or six a day. He's in Bible study group with me, and when he's having those. He prays that he, every morning he texts our group and he says, I've got five of these procedures today. You guys pray for me. And then after it's all over the end of the day, he texts back and says, God had it, it all went fine. He's a, he's a highly trained surgeon. He does very well. But but he acknowledges that. And, and in Kenya Relief, the organization I work with now, in the entry to our operating suite, we've got a picture of a surgeon and a team operating. And on top of the surgeon's hands, or Jesus's hand. I mean, Jesus, Jesus and his, his, you know, 2,000 year ago clothes, beard, whole, whole nine yards, but his hands are guiding the surgeon's hand. And, and that's the, the way we approach this. We, we, we're building a new hospital. We're building a 60 bed 
Maternal Child Health Center in Southwest Kenya. There's nothing like it ever been there before. It's going to change infant mortality from from 700 moms dying a year in a community of about 250,000 to nobody dying. In 50 years of practice, I've never seen a mother die in labor and delivery. Never. 50 years. I've attended lots of C-sections and deliveries and all kinds of things. Never seen it happen. Every year in that county, 700 women die. We're going to change that. We, you know, we're building a hospital that's going to bring state-of-the-art medical care. But our organization founder, Steve James, realized the need for, for um, God's guidance, protection, uh, deliverance, uh, wisdom, all these things. And when it, the, um, the Jews returned to, to uh, Jerusalem after the captivity in Babylon, they found this. They found the, some scriptures, and many people believe in the rubble. The reason they found it in the as they dug the rubble out was it was customary to be, to bury scriptures under the foundation of the temple in buildings that, that had religious significance. And so, one of the nurses from Henry Ford Hospital uh, that goes on our team said, "Why don't we buy, bury Bibles under the foundations of her hospital?" And so we did. <laughs> We protected them. We put them in metal containers. So in each of the each of the footers of our building, there's a Bible underneath the foundation of our clinic because that's how we operate. That's what we do. And, and so, so yeah, when I say I needed help, I, I need divine help. I, I need, you know, founding fathers talked about the, the finger of God and the role of divine providence and the founding of our nation. You know, these men realized that same thing. You know, Ben Franklin, when everything got stuck in the Constitutional Convention, made a resolution. And he said, you know, when we're fighting Britain, I'm paraphrasing, we're fighting Britain. We're in this chamber every day praying. We've been working for about three weeks now. And all we've done is argue and not accomplish anything. Wouldn't it make sense to call on that same God who helped us through the revolution? to give us wisdom to create a document that will govern us. Mm -hmm. So they instituted prayer that day. And every day they had someone from the clergy come in there and pray. And the Constitutional Convention became in one accord rather than constant controversy. So, yes, we need help. (laughs) (laughs) We do need help. You you talk about the the changes in medical um, needs from when you started, right? Boo-boos yep. and, and runny noses. And then yeah. you're saying like there was this wave of more psychological, more mental, more uh, things that are dealing with anxiety and depression that a wave hit where you started to see cases change from yep. boo-boos and ouchies to people dealing with anxiety, depression, suicide. What what do you think, what, uh, what time frame was this that you started to see the shift? And what do you think we attribute that to? Well, if you go back to our foundation again, we were, our, our culture had a, a Christian consensus, I would say, a Judeo-Christian consensus, and was founded on truth. And I know we're a pluralistic society that allows freedom to very diverse, diverse beliefs within our culture. That That's fine. That's wonderful. You know, we open the doors for people to come in here that are different. We're all different. You know, if you look at it, we're all immigrants. Mine came in 1568, but some people came... In 1963, we're all immigrants. We, we, we didn't we didn't develop this country. We came from somewhere else. But but at, at some point in time, we became self sufficient. 
and we did not convey those values to the generations that followed. And, and here's the greatest generation that existed. And then, um, then from there, there's been complacency, I would say. Uh, there's been, um, I would say, uh, no single standard of truth, uh, no acceptance of, uh, of uh, absolute truth, uh, no conveying of that message to others. And so really, if you don't have that kind of anchor, you're going to drift. And the storms are going to come, and you're going to drift. We have lots of storms since then. Right? The war in Vietnam, you know, you know, Watergate, all kinds of things that happened that that we, we start to lose faith in principles of truth. We had heroes fall, you know, they went down, and and so we we attributed their fall to to their beliefs, which was their fall was not due to their beliefs; it was to their lack of beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, that that sort of thing. But but we we tagged the failure onto the belief rather than saying this this person failed to live up to that belief. And so I think that's what happened. And and so we don't have any consensus about truth. And so why wouldn't we be afraid? Why wouldn't we be anxious? Why wouldn't we be de- depressed? You know, why wouldn't we want to say why should we even live? You know, if we come the the, the Marxist uh, progress in particles you know, instead of foundational beliefs, then they were, we're just random. We, we, we drift, uh, uh, we're drifting, uh, drift in the storm, mm. you know, and you got to have power because you're going to flounder. <laughs> if you don't, you got to be moving with the waves and pointing into the waves, but not, you know, parallel to the waves or you're going to get flipped over and, you know, everybody's going to die. So you need to, you need to have some sort of force that drives you through that storm in some sort of direction where you have a sense of control. So you need a force that helps drive you through the storm. And before we hit record, we were in the green room and we talked about opposition and you have a unique way of looking at opposition that maybe you've developed over your years of being in medical missions. Um, Why don't you share your, your views on opposition because you just went through some opposition yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how much of that you want to share, but what what did you, what's your views on opposition? Uh, I've learned through experience, through enduring opposition and then completing a mission, that the magnitude of the mission was always the greatest when it was preceded by great opposition. So, so the the opportunity or the accomplishment was always in proportion to the opposition. More opposition, more opportunity, more accomplishment. I'll, I'll give you the scariest story. That What happened recently is nothing compared to what happened a couple of years ago. So I'm preparing to go to Kenya on a mission trip. And uh, I, I need some folders. I'm the team leader. And so I had some plastic folders in a building outside my house. And so I go out there at night to pick up these folders, to put it in the waterproof folders, to put the documents in. And it's dark, and I've got a light on my building that comes on at night so I can see where I'm walking. And so I'm headed to the door, <clears throat> and the light doesn't come on. I'm about to reach for the door, the doorknob to open the door to the building. And, and it's dark, but I, I don't know. I can't explain how I saw this. But it was like there was a white stick on the doorknob. And I thought, oh, the storm blew a stick on the doorknob. And so I said, I just had this, you know, epiphany. Hey, don't touch the, touch the doorknob. And so uh, back, back and forth through the motion sensor and light comes on. It's a copperhead called around the doorknob. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> I'm about to reach for the doorknob. Now it won't kill me, but it, it would. In two days, I'm supposed to be on an airplane headed for Kenya, and and, th- and and this happened. The snake was there on the doorknob, and so I knocked him off. You know, went in the building, did did all the things I needed to do. And there's literally there's literally been five times that just before a mission trip or something really important like that, there's been a snake involved. Over and over and over and over. Had one fall off the roof one night of my house. I walked in the dark, go to my carport. The <laughs> snake popped my head. I thought he was a limb. Yeah. <laughs> I looked down the ground. It's a snake slithering, slithering off. <laughs> Had one in the bathroom in Kenya. I was in the, I was in the dark. I was making a phone call to my wife. No, I didn't want to wake everybody up. I didn't turn the lights on. I come out of the stall in the bathroom and put the light on. The snake follows me out. <laughs> He'd been in there with me for 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, so the, this, is, this is something, you know, and just recently my wife had a toddler car, you know, just before this this podcast. And I, and I thought, man, there's something really important about this po- podcast. There's something that needs to be said. And, of course, I surrender to God what needs to be said. What do people need to hear? Yeah, I've got a, a bunch of notes here. But, but, I, but I, I said, you direct the questions. You direct the answers, and then you eclipse me from this. So that in the end of all, end of it all, nobody even thinks about this guy here, this talker, but but points to a mighty God who orchestrates the affairs of men, who raises nations, who takes down nations, who accomplishes purposes that we can't even imagine, who challenges us, who inspires us. You know, I had an epiphany about missions one time. I mean, it's just totally God-inspired. And it changed the direction of some of the things that I'm doing. Uh, you know, and, and uh, that that was important, but I was open to it, you know. And, and, and we had, had some very difficult times on that mission, real strong opposition, and had to get on our faces in prayer to go through that. And, and uh, you know, people read the book of, of Daniel, and there was a time when Daniel prayed, and and the answer was delayed. And he said, the angel finally came, and he said, why don't you come? Why don't you show up? And uh, the angel said, well, I've been invaded. I've been involved in a, a conflict with a mighty spiritual force, and God had to dispatch Michael to break the tie so I could get through to you. And so on this particular trip, that's what I prayed. I was on my face and the other team members were on our faces praying for this to happen. And I texted my wife. I said, we need Michael today. We need Michael today. We were delivering food or trying to deliver food to Turkana, Kenya, to a, a big refugee camp there. And it was stuck in the port in Mombasa. It reached a point where they were concerned about labels on the food. And they sent us a message that they were going to either have to dump it in the ocean or take it back to the United States. And so we've been working for months to get this to happen. You know, and a lot of stuff was in the balance. And so at that point in time, that's when we got before God on our faces and prayed. And I texted my wife different time zone and everything, and she got the message, and we we're praying for Michael to come. The next day, this total the government totally released, reversed their decision and released his food and was delivered. And so, yes, we, we get in these situations where we need that kind of help. If we humble ourselves and we're aware of it, the, the powers of heaven will move on our behalf. 
when we're in his will, God's will to do something. So for, for there's a lot of dudes in the audience who don't have this belief system, right? So this might seem like super foreign to them and that's, that's okay. Right. I'm happy to, to share, you know, my, my belief systems and you, you're sharing yours. And that's, that's one of the values of this podcast is people could come and share their ideas and their values and their belief systems. Cause I believe our belief systems dictate all the way through our values or principles all the way to our actions. Right. But you said something that, that really stood out to me is you were a practicing physician and you had a belief system that you were on mission there and you were doing yeah. it for 19 years. And then suddenly you found yourself over in Africa or some overseas somewhere. And you said compassion started to develop within you at a deeper level. What did that look like? Because here you were a doctor caring for kids and, and, you know, giving them stickers and hugging them, I'm sure. And being a great doctor, but now you come back with a different level of compassion. What is it? Because there's probably something in me that needs to tap into deeper levels of compassion and care for others that I don't know how to get to. Yeah, it's, it's still happening. And, and I think I would say, um, you know, our trouble with our different belief systems is if we approach another's belief system from a uh, perspective of personal superiority, um, they're never going to believe what we're saying. Okay, and so so if, if we're going to influence someone, or, or if we're going to be changed ourselves, what I've developed is an eye level mentality. So so I don't care any person in this on the face of this earth. I don't I don't care what their belief system, who they are. They have no belief system. If their life is going well, if they're homeless, I don't care. When I approach that person, I approach them at eye level. You know, there, there's no, never any, um, there's, there's never any consideration of, yeah, I'm where I am because of X. It's something personally that I did. And so what that's allowed me to do is, is uh, have empathy for everyone because I can approach their situation from a position of equality and that, that changed me, you know, and, and I guess at that time before they're probably pretty proud, you know, I'd accomplished my goal. I, I, I've been in practice for 19 years. You know, I was stable in a community. I was respected. All those things were there, but, at, but at a heart level, I guess there was still some pride and maybe superiority there. You know, and I hope that there wasn't because I'd always, you know, attempt to see the spark of the divine in every person that I treated. But but pride uh, is an easy thing to to uh, to get, and, and humility is an easy thing to lose. The guy said, "Once you realize you're humble, you've lost it." <laughs> so so, uh, so it showed you how easy it is. You can be proud of your humility. <laughs> So you gotta be careful because you can always get you can always get tripped up on things. Uh, My father-in-law but, makes a joke. He says, "I'm the most humble person there is." <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, so that's the case. Uh, yeah, and um, it, it allowed me to to also, I, I guess, think out of the box too. And uh, one of the things that happened, you know, I've been going with working with Kenya Relief for for about. Uh, 
I don't know, six years, six teams. And um, I went to, to Canada to deliver that food. And I realized that uh, I was stuck in a place of um, serving people in person, which is what the medicine I learned was. So it's a, it's a one-on-one, it's a dyad, it's a communication with another person who's fixing their problem. And uh, when I saw the devastation that was happening there because of a drought that had been going on for 20 years, I had an epiphany coming back on the plane about systemically changing the lives of people in the developing world. And so I didn't know anything about it, but I felt a real call, a specific call to develop water systems in Kenya on that mission trip. Uh, you know, on the airplane home, I'm realizing, uh, again, and knowing myself, I say, you don't know anything about water systems. You're a doctor. And then when, on the, before I got to Amsterdam from Nairobi, God started connecting people that I knew that could do this. I didn't have to know how to do it. I just need to know people who know how to do it. Uh, my grandson lived in Charleston, South Carolina. His best friend, dad, worked for Water Mission International, which is a large organization that does water systems. My wife's nephew, Josh Munn, was a chemical engineer at Oxy Chemical in Houston. And he certainly could be a consultant to make sure that, you know, I did fiduciary responsibility for donations on a project. And so we started building a team based on that. I texted him from Amsterdam. And, and you know, then, then, then things started flowing to, so that it could happen. The, the area that we worked in, and I don't believe in coincidence. If somebody told me in the Hebrew language is the word consent coincidence does not exist because <laughs> there are people of the book. And so they believe everything is directed by God, ordained, orchestrated, whatever. So they don't have a word for coincidence. But also the the place in Kenya where I worked in, in the 1950s before the British were deposed by, by the uh, rebellion in Kenya and Kenya became a nation, they put a series of impoundments in this specific area of water, water sources, little ponds, little little system of water that people got. Well, Water Mission International, that was their specialty. It was purifying impounded water. It had a patented system called Living Water Treatment System. And so Josh Munn, Brad Reed at Water Missions, the place I had two miles from our orphanage, there's a place that has an impoundment. And so we started working on a system in, uh, in 2010. In 2012, we commissioned a system. 1,200 people had safe water. You know, in 2013, Located another place. This is now about 20, well, 1,200 people in this first community, 12 to 1,600 people, about 2,500 people in the next community. Same system. Josh Munn went back with me. We did all the legwork, you know, compared bids from a local vendor to what he could construct a system from in the United States and then compared it to a bid from Water Missions. Water Missions came out on top. We had another system going for 2,500 people. Uh, you know, and then went back uh, in uh, 2017, 2019, the system in Namomi now wasn't serving the needs of the community. We doubled the size of that system, put it on solar power like our second system had been on because we had power, trouble with the power grid, developed a water system there. During this time, COVID hit, slowed the project down. This, this improvement wasn't completed in 2021. Um, 22 in that range. So that system was commissioned to 2022. By now, because of the availability of water, people are mobile in Kenya. If, it, if they're in a bad place, they can move. Their houses are mud. 
sticks, you know, <laughs> grass roofs. It's, it's not hard. They're going to go where the water is because water is something that in the developing world, the average person goes five miles in Kenya to get water every day. Women have to do this. Children have to do this in schools in order to save, save water. Uh, the results of poor water are terrible. Three million people die every year, 4,000 children a day in the world from bad water. The return on developing a system in, uh, in terms of money spent and return on investment is $8 for every dollar you spend in healthcare for that community because so many things are downstream from bad water. So if you already have an illness, you're weakened because of impure water and polluted water, you're more likely to die from that illness than, the, than a person who had safe water. And so by 2022, we've got 10,000 people with safe water in this community because of a, a revelation. I would say a revelation in my mind that you can still do hands-on, but at the same time, you can be facilitating that. I make one to two trips to Kenya a year. And so I can monitor these systems. I can help the people work through problems. You know, I can reestablish a system when it breaks down. So, so yeah, there's all kinds of things that have happened in me. And I would not have, you know, whatever your belief system is, I hope it's working for you. You know, yeah. it's working. Yeah. And I hope it leads toward um, empathy, uh, connection, a sense of equality with other people, um, a desire to meet needs. To, to be generous, uh, those sort of things. And, and that's what I wanted to develop in myself. And I didn't even know I needed it. <laughs> and, yeah. and it happened. <laughs> you know, I can't take credit for that. All right. So I got I to gotta visit this with you because I think this happens to a lot of guys, myself included. So let's run the scenario. And it looks like I'm lagging a little bit. So just... Be, okay. be patient with me in the technology yeah. on my end. So you and I are on a plane trip and you feel like you have God speak to you about clean water. And then you're like, Josh, I need you to help me with this project. Really? Don't. And I go, uncle John, what do you know about water systems and filtration? You're a doctor, stay in your lane. And I think, I think that happens to a lot of men, myself included, where there's a problem in the world. And then we have a potential solution in our head, but we stop because what do, who am I to do this? What do I know about this issue? I'm, you know, like I'm insignificant in this, right? Like I can't do anything about it. So then it dies right there. How did it not die with you? Somebody told me when you're in a real problem or you face a real problem, what you do is you just take the next right step. You know, and so and, and so it's it's been a pattern of my life. Sometimes I've been uh, I've been sick recently. I've had some health issues over the last couple of years, and I, and I really just kind of stalled, you know, and and I didn't know how to come out of it. You know, and um, God told me, He said, just take the next right step. And so you know, I sought to do something, and then that step will confirm if it's the right step. Or if it's not step, because we're judging things at the moment. Mm -hmm. And what I found is as I my mind was open to the possibility, then it reveals some connections which I could network with. Then my friends started to come in once they heard the idea. I didn't go and solicit money. 
for these projects. But my friends heard about it and they were excited and they started giving me money. I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. You know, I'd be in the office and this lady would come into the clinic and I was, I was kind of sharing with it. And I'm very passionate about what I do. You know, just sharing about what was going on. You know, guy church, I did the same thing. And pretty soon this check comes in the mail. There's some checks for a lot of money, you know, and, and then the system happens. So again, you start taking steps and, and then we, in medicine, you, you, I hate to say it, but you never know exactly what you're doing unless you're surgeon. In real medicine, like like I do, okay, <laughs> in practical medicine, <laughs> prescribing pills, talking to people, trying to figure out what's wrong with them, you know, uh, not having a referral and then just cutting because the guy says, "Hey, this is appendicitis, I got to get it out." But but uh, what we do is we we have information that directs us in a certain path. We start moving in that direction, but we always have our atten- antennas up. So if we get additional information, we change our course. So we're constantly adjust, adjusting our course so that we're staying on target. It would be very foolish, and we kind of saw it in COVID, that, that medicine reached a point where they took a course and they just went headlong into that course and it never, ever veered. You know, things like the vaccines that now they come back and, you know, Brooke and, and Fauci say, you know, this probably wasn't a good, good idea, Brooke said. Boy, I wish we had a good vaccine, <laughs> you know, and keep doing it. So, so, so these sort of things where medicine is bullheaded about something, I think you, you, you start assessing the situation and you continue to move, but, but your step becomes closer and closer to the right step as you, as you see what your environment's doing. And I don't mean opposition. I just mean accomplishment. Cause if you see opposition and that turns you from doing something, then, then you may, you may not be really assessing the situation active. I'm looking toward results happening. And in, in, in this case, results started to happen. Uh, people came alongside me that enabled me to do the things that I felt was a direction to do. They, they bought into the vision so that so that it could be accomplished. So I encourage people out there like you're talking about, if they really have something that they think that's a possibility to, to start taking some some positive steps, some right steps into that, and then constantly reassess their situation. Don't be stubborn and bullheaded if it's just an absolute failure, uh, you know, but be able to turn and readjust their steps. And you, and you find out that you come closer and closer and closer to the real purpose of your life, which is what we're all seeking for. We're seeking for significance and purpose to our lives. Yeah, because otherwise you're a part of a random thing drifting through the waters, like you said, drifting through the storm. Yeah. So you're the particles and progress. We're only particles, and our goal is progress. You know, there's no direction here. We're just randomly moving about it, and we need somebody to tell us what our purpose is. Yeah, rather than seeking actively our purpose, making plans toward goals and, and watching those things happen. And that reinforces us and gives us more courage for the next step that we need to take. So we become stronger because we're like tempered steel that's been hardened, cooled and heated and cooled and heated and hammered into something that's sharp and useful. Yeah. 
Yeah. I like the, way, the samurai, like the samurai sword. Bent over a million times and hammered. Yeah. That's it's <laughs> well, I think I think when you when you said that the opportunity is in great proportion to the amount of opposition you face. Yes. I think what happens for for me is I start going down a path. I'm like, all right, this is the path that I'm supposed to go. And I feel it, right? Like, I feel like this is my purpose. I feel like it's a part of my mission. I feel the significance and I feel the impact. And I, and I start heading that. And then sure as hell, here comes the opposition, <laughs> right? And it's not just one. It's consistent over and over and over. And it's rejection. And then, and then it's this. And, then it's, and, and that happens for a little bit of time. And then let's just say you push through that. And it happens for years or decades. Mm-hmm. How do you know that you're not being the bull stubborn driving through and that you're, you know, that that you're heading in the right direction amidst opposition? Because yes, the opportunity might be great on the other end of opposition, but how do you know you're heading in the right way? Does that make sense? Yeah. This is where this is where it has to align with something bigger than you. Yeah. What what you're doing have to I'll give you an example. William Wilberforce fought slavery for 50 years in Britain. 50 years. He never gave up. He had intense opposition. He never changed because he knew in his heart that the goal was to free men, to free men from enslavement. You know, nobody would argue right now except maybe communist countries that people, it's okay to have people in slavery. Uh, and and so that principle, that overriding principle of truth, that men deserve to be free, propelled him through years and years and years of opposition until finally his goal was achieved. Mm. And, and that's not just one or two years or three or four years, but his entire life was spent doing this. You know, it, 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 that's the thing. So so I, I think I would I would caution anybody who feels called to something to examine their motives okay to to test the wind but also if they're aligned with something valuable something that has significance something that has uh, an overriding noble value then don't let go yeah we got to shift gears for a second here. My sure. step grandfather, Pop, right, is your older brother. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a nickname for him or some dirt on him that next time I go visit him at his house, I could, I could, I could bring back up to him, <laughs> and maybe we could share that offline. Um, <laughs> but, Pretty much, he's been my hero all my life. I mean, he's yeah. just, he's just an amazing guy, and you know. We've all got a few things that we've done, but he's a, he's a person that I would say that I, that I would see as driven by an overriding purpose, <clears throat> and he's never given up. He's never he does, he's not giving up now, and even with his health issues and the things that he's facing right now, man, he's just he's just a he's just an incredible person, and yeah. uh, you know uh, he's a character. <laughs> we all are with a capital C, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah. No, he I called don't. me. He called me the other day just to check in on me, and I just think that's so so incredible. It shows uh, the the amazing family and I'm, that I'm thankful for. Um, 
but enough because we don't want his head to get too big. So <laughs> let's get back on track. Uh, <laughs> so, Uncle John, as you're as you're building this out, how old are you? Okay, I am seventy six years old. Seventy six years old, and you're still planning on going back again and doing more work. What keeps you going rather than just you know saying, "All right, guys, here's some money." You guys go do it. Good luck. Just got to say, I love it. I, I love it. I love it. I would. There's, there's no thing in the world that I would rather be doing than that. And, and, and I do other things too. I'm, I'm active in my church and my community and my family and those sort of things. But, but these are my brothers over there. And I'll tell you a story on our driver, which is really, I've, I've known uh, Francis Wakaba for uh, about 16 years right now. And he's worked for our organization for 20 years. He's, uh, he's about 60 years old. He's a professional driver there, which they really have to almost have a college education to be a guide and a driver. But uh, at one time, um, there was some uh, election discord in Kenya. And uh, there was actually a, a little mini revolution going on. Because uh, one of the members of a minority tribe uh, was pretty close to winning the election. So there were riots going on in Kenya. And one of the towns we went through was called Nakuru. And Nakuru is, a, is a, the capital of the Maasai Nation. And there were a lot of people in that town that were of this majority tribe. And they were very angry with them because they had been given lands that belonged to the Maasai. And so there was actually a war going on in Nakuru when Francis drove there through their delivering a mission team. And so they're fighting with, there are over a thousand people fighting with bows and arrows and spears in the Kuru. They're shaking bands and turning them over and hitting them with rocks and threatening people. So they made it through there the first time, getting the team to our to Magori, uh, which is about an eight hour drive. And the Kuru's right in the center of that. And then Francis had to go back to Nairobi because he was doing some other things while the team was busy there. And, um, then it was time to pick up the team. And he's talking to his fellow drivers in Nairobi. And, uh, and they said, Francis, you can't go there. You're not even a member of the right tribe, number one. And you're going through a war zone. And Francis said, I'll figure out a way to get there. These are my brothers. And I need to go back and get them home. And so he, he went the back roads and got through there and got picked up our team and delivered it back to the airport and got them out of there. But, but, but this kind of bond that I've developed with this people, it's a brotherhood and, and, and I know them. And I, it's almost like going home when I go back. So there's an excitement in my heart about it that, that I can't, I can't describe it. it, it it's, you know, it's, it seized me in a way that I never thought would happen. That first trip I said was a Bible verse said, you just got to do good. And then I felt a calling to Africa through association with Steve James, who founded this organization. And then started developing relationships there and seeing things happen. My wife and I sponsored a little girl for 10 years. She's now grown, uh, <laughs> Mary Akillo. She's grown and married, and I think she's going to have a child pretty soon. And uh, we're sponsoring a little, another little girl uh, named Brilliant that uh, we just got two years ago. And I'm watching her grow, and she's all excited when I come. I get to see her and talk to her and hug her. And, uh, so, so these associations, I know people there. I, I know the people in the clinic. I know, you know, we have stories. So, so no, it's not, it's not just 
check the box, you know, and you know, I get to check another box. These are relationships. And I, I think those relationships have become very dear to me uh, to the extent where you know, I can't, I can't foresee not going. I mean, I, if I'm able to get on a plane, I'll go. I met an 82 year old eye surgeon on the plane to Peru. He couldn't operate in the United States anymore. He's going to Purdue, Peru doing cataracts. You know, he couldn't get staff privileges in the hospital anymore. He could do cataracts. He could do cataracts in his sleep, <laughs> you know, and he was on the plane. I've got a lady here in town that's uh, Hetty Lou Brooks who has a Christian camp. Better in the airport. She's 92 years old. And she was going to her orphanage in Belize. <laughs> I'm going somewhere, and Eddie Lou is going to Belize to see her kids there. So, so this is the, this is what happens in our lives. And I wanted to say this with utmost respect, but also show this like the the crazy thinking behind this. What are a bunch of old senior citizens, you know, jumping on planes and traveling across the world? What the heck are you guys doing? And let me just pause and answer that. You guys are changing the world, and I'm thankful for what you guys are doing. And you're an example to a younger guy to get my you know stuff in gear, because you know sometimes we go, ah, it's not right timing. I'm too old. I'm too young. I don't have enough experience or whatever. And here y'all are leading by example. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And thank God who inspired me. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. What question should I have asked you during this interview that I screwed up and did not ask you? Let, let, let me let me just share a little bit about my organization because I, I really want to plug them. Um, uh, I wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Steve James and KenyaRelief.org. I learned about him from some people in our church that had gone there. And uh, we left the meeting where we'd watched a film about Kenya. And my wife looked me in the eye and she said, don't tell me you're going to Kenya. I said, yeah. <laughs> you know? and so, so I called him and I said, you don't know me, but you know some of my friends. Can I join you on our team? He said, uh, this was 2006. He said, well, we've already got our tickets booked. If you can meet us in Amsterdam, you can go. And so I did. I, I wound up meeting him in Nairobi. I didn't even recognize anybody because we're all scattered out on a big plane. But anyway, uh, this organization was started in 2001 by Steve James. Um, his daughter died. And she was, although she was a, a teenager in college, she was also a philanthropist. She had supported a little kid named Newton in uh, Kenya through child fund. And after she died, Steve James decided, I want to, I want to meet this child. And so Steve traveled to Kenya and found him. He lived in a little town uh, at the foot of Mount Kenya, met Newton and his family, um, gave them some resources so that he could live better. He was an AIDS orphan. Um, he was living with his grandfather. Um, and then volunteered in a hospital in, in Kenya, in Magori. It's a hospital he found he could work in and saw just horrible conditions there. Came back home and told his wife, he said, Brittany believed that she could change the world. And he said, I didn't know how bad the world was until I went to Kenya. So he's cashed out his retirement fund. He bought 16 acres of land in Kenya, established an orphanage in partnership with a church nearby, and over the years has developed this organization. And now they have uh, the Brittany James Home of Grace, named for his daughter, with 100 orphans, Kenya Relief Academy, with, two, with 750 students, 
the Brase Clinic, that's an outpatient uh, care center clinic that is served by 22 uh, medical teams a year uh, from the United States and around the world, physicians, surgeons, nurses, nurse practitioner, physician assistants, uh, assistants, nurse anesthetists, and other fields of practice. Teams of volunteers that come from New York University, Henry Ford Hospital, Louisville Children's Hospital, Cedars-Sinai Hospital, and others. And, and so with his investment in, in this place, a, a whole community is being impacted. He's been cited for, for his humanitarian e effort by the, the wife of the president of Kenya. Uh, he's been recognized by other na national organizations for his work there. And so I'm proud to serve with him in his organization. And again, he's a dear friend uh, and the most passionate person I've ever met. And, and so he's part of the, if you were to ask a question about some, some, some uh, principles or, or what maybe you didn't ask me, I've learned that serving on medical teams in the developing world in the company of many heroes, I've learned the following things. We must have an ear attuned to listen and hear. The Holy Spirit's soft voice when he says, come and follow me into this work. We must seek to recognize exceptional leaders who challenge us by their example and, when possible, align our efforts with theirs. And like I said, I'm eternally thankful to God that he led me to meet Steve James, the CEO of KenyanRelief.org. I said we must constantly seek to leverage our abilities toward maximizing our effectiveness and alleviating the suffering of people that endure uh, that in the developing world. And we cannot possibly achieve our goals in philanthropy without identifying and enlisting assistance from other stalwart, capable, generous individuals who also share our specific passions. That's what I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Where can people go to find out more about the organization and maybe support it, maybe financially or maybe uh, through other types of resources? What's a good place? Yeah, we take volunteers. Um, uh, the website is KenyaRelief.org. Kenya Relief has one long word, .org. And uh, there are opportunities for service on teams. There's opportunities to contribute. I have part of that, the Dr. John Robert Water Fund that we're still developing water projects in Kenya. Uh, there's sponsorship of orphans. Uh, there's a bit ability to contribute to the final phase of a 60-bed maternal child healthcare hospital. Um, get on the site and look. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. And uh, I, I've been amazed at what's been accomplished and, and blessed by just being uh, able to be involved in it. Uh, I can't think of my life without this having happened. <laughs> I wouldn't be... <laughs> So small and so sad <laughs> if if it hadn't happened to me. Yeah. Something that just popped in my main, uh, in my mind. I can't, you know, I'm a professional speaker and I sometimes jumble words. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, something that just popped in my mind is financially. What's a financial thing that you guys have coming up that you need help with? I, I would say right now at the hospital, because we're in the final, final phase of, of building this hospital and, um, it's a million. It's a million dollar hospital. It's uh, it's partnered with uh, M-Pesa, which is one of the cell phone companies in Kenya. There are three cell phone companies, and they've contributed to it. But as you build things there, uh, project delays, expenses, and those things. And, and Steve James just wrote me today. He said, "Pray," um, and it was interesting because uh, 
you know, I had just written that part about opportunity and opposition. He said, uh, you know, when you build something big like this, he said, there's always some surprises. And so he said, financially and in the building phase of this hospital, will you pray for me for the next three days that we'll achieve that? And, and then he said, we will. And so so that would be a big thing. This is this is so dramatic. You, you can't imagine that whatever size your community is to have a mother die in childbirth. It's you know you lose you lose two patients and you lose the mom and the dad and this family's forever impacted, and so seven hundred times a year that happens in this community, seven hundred times, and in fifty years practicing medicine, I have never seen it happen in the United States, and I, I, I grieve with those who may be listening now, who that has been the case in their family, but in my personal experience, I've never seen that, but that grief is overwhelming. For the person listening now and for those people over there, they feel exactly like we do. They grieve in their hearts for the loss of a mom and a baby that they were expecting. So so if we can push that that one project across the line right now, I would really say uh, that would be a place where they could be very helpful uh, and have a huge impact. And they can, they can do that by going to KenyaRelief.org to find yeah, out more. And on that, there's a place to donate. You can do PayPal, credit card, whatever. You can designate their list of pop, pop down menu, you know, so that it shows you the different places you can de- designate your gift to, or you can hand write in there. And um, uh, Becky Richardson is the person who handles donations. And if they want to uh, email her through their, the, uh, you know, through their, their uh, email account, they can get in touch with these people. Becky Richardson is actually the one who handles the donations. Cool. Super cool. Uh, I'm going to send you guys some money. Uh, fellow listeners, dude out there, guys out there who have um, resources, check it out. Uh, if God's calling you to move on something like that, just check it out. Uh, if you have some questions or you'd like to chat further with our guest, their contact information will be in the show notes. If you guys in the audience have some advice that you'd like to share with other men, or you need to chat with someone, uncensoredadviceformen.com, fill out a quick form. I gave you my number in the very beginning. You could always text or call me. I love you guys. I'm here for you. We'll talk to you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody.